Good afternoon, evening, or morning, wherever in the world you are. <laughs> Welcome. I have uh, Ted and Andrea Lemon with me. They'll keep me on track. Actually, nobody can do that, but uh, <laughs> we'll do our best. They'll do their best. Yeah. All right. So, welcome to the Patreon Q and A. Um, uh, I I think I'm going to use the same strategy that I have the last couple of times. I'll uh, I'll answer the questions of people that are here first, um, and then take up questions of people that aren't here. Uh, you need some ways to make a note of the people that we've skipped. You know, as I go through the list, because the list is fairly long. Yeah. Oh, I can pull up the Patreon. Okay. All right. Nick is here now, too. Nick Van Cleek is behind you as well. Oh, oh hi, Nick. Good. You snuck in and I was busy trying to figure things out here. Yeah. All right. So let's begin. We have quite a few questions, and I was looking over them earlier, and I'm answering a lot of them here. Oh, that's that's Thomas. He's just that's background noise and. Yeah. I'm going to mute you for the time being, Thomas. All right, is uh, John uh, Bash here? Yeah. No, no John Bash. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to answering John's question. But, so hopefully he'll show up. No, actually, he said he might not. He said in his comment that he might not. Okay, Hassan, it's Hassan here. I don't see Hassan. All right, Chris Scott. <laughs> Oops, Chris here. Well, you know what? I'm going to answer Chris's question anyway because it's some things that I would, you know, I, I'd be quite happy to bring you up to date on. Okay. Um, Chris asks, how is my health? And what can you tell us about your work on your upcoming book on the changes to the stronghold and the integration with PCMC? Uh, for those of you who don't know, TCMC is Tucson Community Meditation Center, and the Stronghold is Kochi Stronghold Retreat Center that Nancy and I uh, operate in uh, Southeast Arizona. So, how is my health? Well, <clears throat> uh, I have stage four lung cancer that is responding extremely well to a new drug called Tegriso. Uh, previous CAT scans, CAT, scan, uh, CAT scans 
have shown uh, no growth in any of the metastases and some shrinkage in one of them. And I have another CT scan coming up uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks. So on that front, things are well. I have an unhealed uh, incision from a surgery I had February 6th. Uh, and various other things were interfering with that, a MRSA infection and so forth. And the good news on that is that uh, it's finally healing. Uh, yesterday, it was, uh, uh, it had made such a remarkable change that the people in the wound care center were uh, the nurse practitioner was doing a victory dance and waving arms in the air. One of the nurses said, I've never seen so much change so quickly. Now, uh, uh, just to let you know, Andrea has been doing uh, a, a kind of healing method, energetic healing method, uh, that she learned from Bill Bengston, B-E-N-G-S-T-O-N. And uh, Bill Bankston's story is really amazing, so I, I recommend that you all uh, have a look. <clears throat> look up Bill Bankston and look at some of his TED Talks and uh, uh, YouTubes. It's rather amazing. But anyway, that seems to have uh, contributed, I think, greatly to the, to the healing of the incision. Other than that, I think I'm doing pretty well. Uh, a little bit subject to fatigue, which considering the things that have been going on isn't a surprise, but getting better all the time. Um, as for uh, as for work on the upcoming book, well, that's uh, there, there's less writing being done than uh, I would like, but it's actually I think beneficial because. Uh, you know, there's, because of what I want to achieve with it, I want to reach a very wide audience who might be put off by something that is uh, too Buddhist or even particularly recognizable as Buddhist. So uh, I'm trying to put it together in such a way that uh, won't put people off. I want to reach as many people as I can with it. And... Uh, coming clearer and clearer in my mind just how to do that, how to frame it. So uh, I would say, considering uh, what's going on, uh, the book is progressing nicely. Um, the, uh, the reason it's not progressing more rapidly has to do the next part of the question. Was uh, Chris was asking about the changes to Perchy Stronghold Retreat. Well, due to a donation, Dharma Treasure is taking over Kochi Stronghold Retreat. We will be operating as a retreat center primarily for people on solo retreat. Uh, we'll probably do about four group retreats a year. And our niche as a retreat center will be one for uh, small intensive group retreats uh, of 15 to 20 people, and uh, what we would like to see is something like uh, five to eight people on solo retreat uh, going forward. Over the last couple of years of doing solo retreats, well, a couple, probably I should say about the last four or five years, 
we've had people do retreats everywhere from uh, a few days to uh, more than a year. Uh, had one person do an eight-month retreat. Several people do five or six months retreat. Lots of people do two weeks and or three weeks or one month retreats. And uh, we'd like to see more of that. We have um, we have a uh, resident teacher program. So each month there will be a different uh, teacher here. The majority of them will be uh, teachers that I have trained in the, uh, in the Dharma Treasury teacher training courses, but for the month of September, we have Daniel Ingram as a resident, a resident teacher. And uh, the resident teachers will assist me in doing meditation interviews. Um, once, uh, once the transition has completed and we found somebody to be on site and run the retreat center, uh, Nancy and I will be free to do other things. Of course, I'll be free to work on the book more and spend more time in teaching. Uh, Nancy will have more time to go to Canada and visit kids and grandkids. Well, I'll be doing that as well, but probably not till the two weeks she is. Um, I plan on being here on a, about a weekly basis uh, and here for longer periods when we have things going on that uh, are appropriate to that. So, um, this is a big transition. There's a lot involved uh, in uh, transferring property into a nonprofit. And um, the biggest, <clears throat> and this is something, I'm glad I have this opportunity to put it out to all of you. The biggest thing that needs to happen right now is to find a, a person or preferably a couple who would love to live in the most exquisitely beautiful wilderness area and operate a retreat center on a day-to-day -day basis. And I know somewhere out there is that person or that couple who this is their dream and they're going to show up and they're going to come and they're going to move in here and uh, they're going to start doing all, all the work that Nancy and I have to do now. <laughs> but until that happens, um, and, and until that happens, things won't look much different than they have for the last few years. <laughs> so, and we'll continue to be taking solo retreats and making arrangements for uh, group retreats, etc. And then, I think there's one more part to Chris's question: uh, the integration. The Tucson Community Meditation Center. Well, I'm not sure what Chris is thinking of or referring to in that. Um, there's an ongoing involvement of Dharma Treasure teachers with the Tucson Community Meditation Center. And with more time freed up for myself, and I do have, I do have a little co-op condo in uh, Tucson now. Um, I may have more personal involvement with Tucson Community Meditation Center. That's all up in the air. It's things we happen in the future. But uh, our relationship with TCMC will, will continue. Um, well, actually, one connection that we have with TCMC that's very good is that Blake Barton, who is the executive director of TCMC, is also the interim executive director 
of Dharma treasure at the moment during this transition. So that's kind of what's going on with me, Nancy, and Dharma Treasure, and Kochi Stronghold Retreat. They, oh, in the future, it will be Dharma Treasure Retreat at Kochi Stronghold. So we keep the branding of Kochi Stronghold, but it becomes identified as Dharma Treasure Retreat. That may be more than you wanted to know, but Chris asked, and I wanted to tell you. <laughs> What's that? Okay, Jason. Jason, I have a question. Jason, in the mind illuminated, you seem to be advocating developing very strong piti before releasing effort, which allows it to calm down into sukha and equanimity. Um, I see, I'm going to go ahead and read a little further before I stop. I seem to have trouble seeing PT as very pleasurable until I release more effort and attempt to let the body's intuition take over, upon which it turns into something that feels more like sukha. Jason, can we just uh, talk a little bit about that first sentence? I, I don't understand what you mean when you say that I advocate developing very strong PT before releasing effort. Um, could you help me with? with yeah. Um, so in, in stage six and seven, I believe, um, you talk about the, um, I guess the, the joy and energetic sensations like um, building up and becoming very strong, I, I think. Um, and then until in stage eight, um, I mean, I guess in stage seven and eight, you're releasing effort, and at that point, um, my my thought was that the, the PT starts mm -hmm. to turn into more of the, the emotional joy rather than the physical uh, pleasure. Um, I'm having a little trouble hearing you. I don't know if you can so, increase your volume. Um, can you hear me now? Yeah, that's much better. Okay. Yeah, in, in stage six and seven, it seems like you are um, advocating that the, the PT and physical pleasure uh, gains a lot of momentum, right? Um, and then at that point, uh, in stage seven and eight, you're starting to release effort, and then that release of effort seems like it is what allows it to turn into more... Um, Emotional component of, of Sutra, where it's, it turns from you know physical to the actual uh, meditative joy, right? Um, so I, I feel like if when I when I'm trying to make, um, gain exclusivity, um, that joy or the the, the pleasure uh, pleasurable aspect of the, the PC. I mean, I feel, I will feel like a the vibrate, the vibratory aspect, but it doesn't become very pleasurable until I start letting it feel like it's kind of happening on its own more and starting to okay. release effort more gradually, you know? Um, well, and that's what allows it to get that moment. Yeah, let, let's stop there because <clears throat> I assume that the manifestation of PT that you're referring to is movements and uh, 
sensations or strange bodily sensations? Yeah, like energetic sensations, but not necessarily very okay. pleasurable yet. Okay, well, first of all, except for the admonition to look for the joy and to try to make your meditation as pleasurable as possible, I don't encourage you to do anything to develop PT. PT develops by itself uh, in association with the unification of mind. Now, it does happen for some people that PT begins to develop at, at earlier stages, but for most people, PT, it, there may be some early signs of it in stage seven and some strange sensations, but for most people, strong PT doesn't develop until stage eight after effortlessness has been achieved. So perhaps in your instance, you, you're one of those people that may be experiencing strong PT earlier than that. And what I'd like you to do, if you're, if you're experiencing these movements and so, and so forth, is just as much as possible, let them be. If you find that uh, you have the same goal of developing exclusive attention and powerful introspective awareness, but what I'd ask you to do is if you find that focusing very closely on the meditation object is making the PT more severe, that you just back off a little bit. Now, it sounds like another problem may be that you, there's, a, there's a little bit too much striving. You speak of effort. And you should, be, you should be trying to be as relaxed as you can. You say that when you are more relaxed, it gets better. So, you know, your body and your mind are already telling you what you need to do. They're already giving you the advice. They're saying, take a more relaxed approach to this. Focus your your efforts and your intention. I mean, your primary effort should be to maintain the intention to uh, have your uh, attention be uh, exclusive and to, to have strong metacognitive introspective awareness. But having formulated those intentions, you just let, you don't put more effort into it. It's like you make the intention to walk through the door and go pour yourself a cup of tea. You've formulated the intention, then you just let it act out. If you, if you get distracted and start to do something else, say you see something and you think, oh, I should put that away, well, then what you do is refresh your intention and you say, well, no, I intended to go and get some, a cup of tea. But it shouldn't, there shouldn't be any more effort uh, in, in the intentionality than that. It does require um, what... What it requires that seems most effortful is maintaining that vigilance, that, you know, being, just simply being watchful, uh, you will naturally, because you're holding the intention uh, to make corrections if uh, your attention begins to move. So you already have that, that intention, and if you find that uh, it, it weakens, so, well, you can just write, remind yourself that you're planning to go get a cup of tea. But it's very gentle, it's soft, right. it's very natural. Um, and that should allow the PT to be, you to be able to just leave the PT in the background. Um, I think maybe I, I should clarify a little bit. Um, 
I guess when I say PT, it's not that I have uncomfortable physical sensations or um, I'm, I'm referring to it more in the sense of the, like the momentum of the intention, right? Like the, the interest in the object that is being built over time by like the sustained, you know, attention um, that's, that's building up. So I'm seeing it as a, a good thing that's like building momentum, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of buildup of intention and energy is, um, yes, it becomes stronger, right? Um, and that's and that's good, but it it's not really taking on the. And as I let go of my effort gradually and kind of give the responsibility to the PT to drive the attention to the object rather than you know my egoic attention, um, it seems to become more pleasurable. Right, so is that kind of gradual process of handing over the responsibility to do that, um, how you make the transition into effortlessness? Or would you say that you are building up the attention so it's completely solid using egoic mm -hmm. efforts and then just dropping it? Um, um, what it is is, uh, yeah, the, the real effort <clears throat> is just to fulfill the intention to have exclusive attention and uh, strong uh, metacognitive introspective awareness. And so, yeah, as you, you're basically doing the right thing. If you, to the degree that you catch yourself uh, forcing and pushing, trying too hard, taking the fun out of it, making it unenjoyable, that's a message to just, just relax and back off. So you're doing exactly the right thing. Now, Really, what, what is going to happen during stage seven is that just uh, essentially, whether you think of it as your brain rewiring or as, if you think of it as your mind system training itself, there is going to be what we've described as a unification of mind until there are enough of your subminds, unconscious subminds, unified around the idea of. Uh, maintaining exclusive attention and introspective awareness, that you find that you can just let go of uh, effort entirely. But yes, all the way along, you're trying not to be, I mean, even from before this stage, trying not to over effort and not to strive, be more of a just more of a relaxed state. Does that answer your question? Yes, uh, thank you. I'm going to have a look at it, see if there's any more to it. Uh, you let the body's intuition take over. Feels more like sukha. Yeah, that's 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 good. That's right on. Um, do yeah, I think I've answered your whole question here. Do you feel like that? Yes, thank you. Good. Okay. Yes. Um, could I just add something to the Paul shared with me that was helpful to me? Sure. Um. So. On a recent retreat, I, I was working with uh, one of our student, uh, our colleague in the teacher training, and he's, he gave me a suggestion that when the mind is steady and there are not very many mental objects around, if you just sort of bring up the notion of releasing effort into the mind, and then if, if the response is more pleasure and more ease, that's your indication that you're ready to, to kind of go with it for a bit. 
at least until it destabilizes again. And I found that to be sort of a useful way to just kind of keep testing. Like, is it, is it, am I ready to release effort? And there, there would be that pleasure response just to, just to the thought of it. And um, usually I could succeed at least in dropping effort for some time while just, you know, being aware that, that it, it might not last. So. Yeah, I definitely find like I, I need to, I tend to over effort, so I need to, you know, remind myself to be dropping effort most of the time. And it does usually end up, uh, you know, providing more joy, but yeah, you do have to watch out for, you know, falling into illness, of course. So, uh, yeah. Okay, let's go on to David's question. Um, David asks, could you talk about your integration of the jhanas to the sangha's nine mental abidings and TMI? Do you understand TMI as an original integration of Mahayana, Yogacara, and Theravada models of shamatha practice, uh, in addition to integrating insight practices as well? Yes, absolutely. Yes. It, it is... Uh, it is an original integration, for sure. If so, was integration based mainly on your own meditative experience, or were there precedents in the tradition that you made use of? Well, the major precedent was that the tradition that I come from, my teachers were students of Namjel. Uh, I had some contact with Namjel Rinpoche, but uh, uh, not that much, but uh, he was sort of my root teacher. And the thing about Namjel is he took practices from every tradition that you can think of. I just don't, I don't just mean Buddhist tradition. I mean, any tradition was. And he, he liked to introduce people to them and have them try them out. And um, the main thing that characterizes people who have studied under Namjel or Namjel's students, is that we're very eclectic. We don't, you know, we, we're not, we're not uh, Theravada-centric, we're not uh, Tibetan-centric, you know, we're not Zen-centric or anything like that. We tend to be very open to looking at what all these traditions have to offer. And, uh, uh, and to utilize that in a very pragmatic way. What works best? What has one tradition discovered that uh, uh, can be combined with something from another tradition and the net result is uh, a better result or uh, a quicker realization? So uh, that is the precedent. Uh, there aren't, uh, the reason there aren't much in the way of traditional precedents to this is because these are all traditions that have been, you know, until 100, 150 years ago, uh, very few people ever traveled more than 50 miles from where they lived. So if they were Buddhists, the only tradition they knew was the local neighborhood tradition. And uh, so that's why this hasn't there really isn't much precedent for this until modern time. Does that adequately answer your question? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. 
Okay. Uh, Boris, is Boris here? Yeah. Okay. Hello, Boris. Hi, Boris. Yeah. Okay. Boris asks, <clears throat> according to your instructions for stage seven, we should practice experiencing the whole body with the breath only as needed for the beginning of this stage to achieve exclusive attention and then try experiencing effortlessness with the sensations of the nose. As I'm navigating between stages six and seven techniques, I find it natural to drop effort when doing the whole body with the breath and stay with these sensations for a while. Are the sensations in the body a valid meditation object for practicing effortlessness, at least for a part of the session? Uh, yes, absolutely. It's, you know, if, if you can get into effortlessness, I'm gonna go back to an earlier sentence. As you said, uh, the beginning of stage to achieve exclusive attention and then toward, uh, and then try experiencing effortlessness. Well, there's a piece in between there that I think you probably know about, but I'm, I'm going to point out anyway. You might start off your session uh, doing the whole body practice, and this gets you settled into uh, very good exclusive attention and, and strong uh, awareness. Then you go to focusing the attention on the nose and seeing if you, and, and not seeing it, but, but maintaining that same exclusive attention and, and uh, high level of awareness, high level of mindfulness with the sensations of the breath on the nose. And then when you think it's appropriate, you try letting go of effort and you see what happens. You see, see. so that's the part that you left out there was between the, you seem to be saying that you can achieve exclu uh, exclusive attention and effortlessness in uh, while doing the body, uh, whole body breath practice. Is that what you're saying? That you can achieve effortlessness with a whole body breath practice? Yeah, because sometimes I like I'm switching from the body to the nose. I have some. Uh, I feel that I have exclusiveness, so I uh, return to the nose, and then the exclusiveness may fade. So I come back to the body. So I'm switching back and forth. Okay. And suddenly, sometimes a fortalness just come come comes in yeah. when I'm on body. I I don't say a fortalness stop. We are not. At the nose now, so let's not. Yeah. So it catch me. Effortlessness sometimes catches me when I'm with the body, and I feel feel it's natural just to let go of this effort and to feel my body, my subtle sensations on the body without any effort, mm -hmm. and to feel this, yeah. to to sink into it. Well, and, and I wonder if I can allow to myself that, doing that, that. That's fine and good. It, to, to, if you can get the experience of effortlessness using the whole, whole breath uh, body, a whole body breath practice. But remember what you're after. If you look at stage eight, the practice is there. In stage eight, you're using your attention in all kinds of different ways. And it, is, it has to be effortless for you to use it 
in the ways that those practices demand in stage eight. So what you're trying to achieve in stage seven is a, a kind of effortlessness that doesn't depend on being in a particular uh, mode of practice like uh, uh, experiencing the whole body with the breath. So what you, what you want to do is, sure, use the whole body with the breath as a way to get there. But the important thing is to go back to the nose and keep working there until you get to the place where you, you can let go of uh, the effort and that stage remains effortless. Then, then you'll find when you go to stage eight, you can do those practices. You're, but to be, to be able to be effortless, but in only one context is, is, is not going to, uh, you, you're going to be quite limited in what you can do. I know, I know, I know that uh, ultimately I, I should do it within the nostrils. But yeah. if, if I feel it on this st uh, stage of the body, uh, my question is if I can spend some time knowing that I ultimately should do it within the nose, may I spend some time effortlessly within the body, with yeah. the body? Yeah. And, and is, it, is it helpful? Is it uh, contributes? Yeah. Contribute it, to it, the goal. It's, it's helpful up to a point, as long as you don't get hooked on doing it that way. And you do want to you you do want to get to the point where you're just you're starting out with a nose, and you don't need you know. As, as you get better and better at achieving effortlessness without the whole body breath, then you're, okay. you're going to let it fall away. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Evgeny? Evgeny. Evgeny? Sorry, I'm not good at uh, names. Evgeny, are you here? Oh, that's too bad. Okay. <clears throat> that would be a, a very interesting question that we might get back to later on. Um, Adrian. Okay, Adrian says. Hello. Hmm? Hello. Hi there. Adrian. Okay, Adrian says it would be nice if you could comment on samatha, insight, and their relation with path attainment. I've heard that realizing fourth path may take years for people that are in third path. But some people become spontaneously awakened. I understand this is full enlightenment, fourth path. I also imagine that there is a process of maturation after the key realization, spreading it through the mind. And also that people at stages seven, eight, nine, and 10 start to have insight, which is what makes you enter the paths. Shouldn't someone at stage 10 easily be able to have as much insight as he wants and therefore achieving paths easily? Well, to answer the final question there is absolutely. If someone hasn't already uh, achieved insight and perhaps uh, uh, first path or, or more by the time they reach stage 10, it should follow quite easily and quite quite quickly, it usually does. Um, 
you asked me to comment on samatha insight and the relationship with path attainment. Um, yeah. Excuse the movement of the computer. I just, I have it on my knee, so I have to readjust every now and then. Okay. Well, one of the things about the method that I teach is that you're just basically developing your mental faculties, the mental faculties that are necessary for realizing insight, for awakening, and you use those same faculties on the, on the paths from stream entry to arhat to further deepen and uh, allow those insights to mature. That's really what, that's really what those paths are about. Uh, is uh, is expanding those insights. So the method that I teach develops the mental faculties that are necessary to do that. Whereas there are a lot of there are a lot of practices that don't. They develop uh, a much more limited repertoire of uh, mental faculties, or they use what I refer to as hacks to. Uh, arrive at an ability to do something like uh, without ever having really developed stability of attention to for a, a relatively short period of time be able to uh, experience kanika uh, samadhi uh, you know a momentary attention uh, properly speaking momentary attention is something that comes naturally after you've developed uh, powerful stability of attention but there are hacks you can use to get to a place where you can have access to uh, momentary attention without having developed samatha. When you get into the paths, and particularly the transition to the, from second path onward, if you haven't developed a full uh, set of tools and faculties, uh, you're going to be impaired and hampered, and it's going to take uh, quite a long time. The one thing that is most undeveloped in most methods, and I think it's simply as a result of the failure, uh, I shouldn't call it failure, it's not really a failure, that the, just, just the fact that the recognition of uh, attention and awareness as two distinct things, and understanding that what, what I call peripheral awareness, and particularly what I call metacognitive introspective awareness, is what the Buddha was referring to as sati. And in the Eightfold Path, you have to have both samasamata, uh, samasam, uh, uh, samasamadhi, and samasati. And so there are a lot of people who are arriving at first or second path uh, by methods where they haven't developed either uh, sama samadhi or sama sati to the degree that the Buddha prescribed. And this, of course, is going to put them at a great disadvantage and it's going to take a lot longer for them to realize the higher paths. I won't mention any specific things, but there's one very, very well-known tradition in which it's often commented on the fact that people rarely are able to, to get past sec, second path. And it's for exactly that reason, that they haven't 
they haven't developed these faculties. And that's the advantage of sama, uh, of, uh, samatha vipassana, is that you are, you are developing those faculties and you are applying those faculties. You're learning to use them all the way along. And so when it comes to achieving the higher path, you can progress much more quickly and much more easily because, uh, because you have a mind that's, that's fully developed in this regard and you have tools to work with. You mentioned that, uh, yes, yeah, some people become spontaneously awakened. I understand this is full enlightenment, fourth path. I also imagine that there is a process of maturation after the key. Well, let's just skip that last part. You know, there are, there are stories of people that have become spontaneously awakened, but I question whether any of them have achieved fourth path. It's usually more of an awakening to, uh, uh, to stream entry. Um, there is an account, you've probably come across it, of a woman who had never done any kind of formal practice before, but who achieved awakening while stepping on a bus in Paris. And I can't remember what happened to her, but she was not able to cope with life at all after that. And she didn't live very long. I can't remember whether uh, she actually committed suicide. I don't remember what happened to her in the end. But that's the only account that... Uh, I've, I've really seen people uh, suggest that what she may have achieved was uh, the fourth path without really any kind of <laughs> developmental process up to that. And I don't even know whether that's true or not. I mean, that, that story has been around for years, may even be apocryphal. But it's most definitely the case that people do uh, uh, spontaneously awaken to stream entry. And I would hold out the possibility that they may, uh, there may be cases of people that spontaneously awaken to, um, to second path. That's not, that's not a big stretch. That's not a, it's a stretch, but it's not a huge one. The people spontaneously awakening to first path, um, uh, I, I've encountered a couple and I've heard about more. And so I think that may be a reality. Um, So, uh, Adrian, I want to ask you if there are any aspects of your question I haven't addressed or that I missed the point of what you're trying to find out. No, uh, uh, thank you. It's what I wanted. Uh, I just wanted some clarifications on what to expect when, 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 when I, well, if I get to, the, to those places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was just curious how many of you have heard the story of the woman who spontaneously became... Uh, awakened while getting on a bus in Paris. It's been around for so long, I would have expected half of you at least to have heard it. Yeah? Quite a few people have. There's a book called Collision with the Infinite. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nick just told us there's a book called Collision with the Infinite. Someone in the chat suggested. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Suzanne, Suzanne Siegel. Yeah. yeah. How, how would the woman commit suicide? If she, if she achieved arhanship, isn't that supposed to relieve her from suffering? 
Um, yes. A brain tumor, actually. Uh, she died of a brain tumor. Um, well, you know, now that I, well, first of all, I agree with what you said. It is that uh, she had re, it may, you know, you're familiar with uh, Stroke of Insight. Um, what's that woman's name? Yeah. I don't know. What? Yeah, Jill Bolte-Taylor. Bolte That's right. I, I think of Jill Bolte-Taylor's stroke, and I think about Susan Siegel's brain tumor, and, uh, you know, I, I think maybe in that case, there's, there's a possibility that um, she didn't achieve awakening in the kind of traditional sense, but perhaps that brain tumor was already having an effect. So, I don't know. None of this will ever know. Um, with this additional information, I just qualify what I already said by saying, as far as I know, nobody's ever spontaneously awakened to an hat shirt. <laughs> okay. I think that's, that's the direction I go with that. Um, Nick, grab a bag. Hi, Nick. So Nick says, what are the specific formal and informal practices you would recommend for someone who has already attained second path and is ready to work towards third path? And what are the key signposts along the way that indicate progress is being made in the right direction? Well, this is a, this is a very good question, very interesting question. Um, somebody who's on second path, um, the nature of that path is the recognition of the uh, pervasiveness of uh, self-clinging and craving, even at very subtle levels. And part of that is recognition that craving itself is pleasant and has a particular attraction uh, associated with it. Um, in terms of formal and informal practices, actually, the, if by informal practices we would mean practicing off the cushion in daily life, um, formal practices are important at this stage, but the informal practices are extremely important. Basically, a person, what's happened to them is they've had this recognition, this realization that, uh, that there is a remnant of self-clinging and that there is um, uh, uh, ongoing craving. Uh, this is at the sort of the culmination of first path, is this realization that, that self-clinging and craving are still present, that have always been present. There's this kind of shocking and painful realization that almost everything they've ever said, done, thought, or whatever was was uh, um, being was arising out of some degree of self-clinging and uh, craving, and that there were subtle forms of craving that they were pursuing, uh, e even as a stream entrant, that they were continuously pursuing because they weren't recognizing this. And so it's this recognition. What it is, is it's a, uh, 
it's a sort of an, um, an incremental leap into a deeper understanding of, of uh, no self and suffering. Uh, it's, really, uh, it, it's really a deep insight into the first uh, two, or, or I guess you could say the first three noble truths. And the, uh, the person who is reaching the culmination of first path has this realization that, uh, of what the true enemy is of any kind of real satisfaction, any kind of real freedom, uh, any, any kind of real liberation. And it is that insight that brings about the tradition or the transition, the second path. Because now, by recognizing the enemy, remember the Buddha saying, Mara, I see you, I know what you do, uh, and, um, uh, and I will defeat you. Uh, this is really a very good description of uh, the mindset of a person uh, who has made the transition to second path. Um, the, the power of craving over them has been greatly diminished by this, uh, this incremental deepening of insight into suffering and self-cleaning. Uh, self and so typically what tends to happen is that the person in the second path becomes very busy with recognizing uh, uh, what the form it will take will depend sort of on which was which they became most aware of, uh, whether it was the self-clinging they became most aware of, or whether it was the, the craving that they became most aware of. They'll come become aware of both. But um, whichever it was that, that was sort of the, uh, the breakthrough or gateway insight uh, for the transition from first to second path, they are going to go into this ongoing pursuit of recognition of self-clinging and craving wherever and whenever it arises and recognizing it in subtler and subtler forms and learning to use uh, all of the insight that they have, all of the insight power they have to overcome uh, that self-clinging and, uh, and that craving. And that's why the culmination of second path is uh, freedom from craving for things of the sense realm and the clinging to the ego self. And we're still left with this inherent sense of being a separate self that is very, very deeply embedded in the brain. But, but self-clinging, uh, at least in terms of the ego self, will come to an end at the end of second path. So what the formal practice does is it, it constantly reinforces this. You're, you're practicing uh, in the same way. Uh, you're, using, you're using all of the techniques that you have to observe, uh, to observe the arising of, uh, of craving and self-clinging in its most subtle forms. Uh, your formal practice is where you, uh, you refine that and your informal practice in daily life is where you apply that. And so um, 
specific formal practice, I think one, one that I would highly recommend is the meditation on the mind. Um, if it's a Mahamudra-like meditation, but where you're in the, in the Mahamudra state and you intentionally allow various mental formations to arise. Now, what would you expect to arise in uh, you're, you're meditating in that state and of all the possible uh, things that various unconscious sub-minds have that they might project into consciousness when you give permission for these things to arise, what, what kinds of things would you expect to, to be most likely to arise? Things subtle, that are, yeah. subtle things related to the sense of self. Exactly. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So you get the practice sitting on the cushion. And that's, that's why I really like the meditation on the mind for this. Because you get to see, you get to see the ones that are, uh, that, that are, I guess, ready, ready to make an appearance. And, uh, and, and then you can get up off the cushion and you can apply this in, uh, in real life situations that trigger theorizing. That's super helpful. Thank you. That's very clear how that laid out. Um, I just had a, a couple of things, um, if I may, just yes. and to ask for clarification. So um, my understanding of the, to the 10 fetter approach was that, um, that it's second the culmination of first path, um, so then your second path, that doesn't actually result in an additional fetters being broken. It's more a, a dramatic attenuation and craving for sense pleasures. Is that correct? That's exactly okay. right. Okay, and then the transition from second to third is where those fetters are broken. That's right, exactly. Okay. Um, are there any particular, um, I know that, um, that we need to be careful about um, reading too much into achieving particular states. Um, but is, are there particular signposts along the way as someone is, is working towards that transition from second to third path that indicate that things are moving in the right direction in terms of, um, uh, I guess, the relationship to craving, but also um, just sensory perception-wise? Mm -hmm. Anything that stands out? Yes, what the, the, the main thing that stands out in first path is uh, a growing dissatisfaction. Like initially with third path, it's like, wow, this is wonderful. This is so much better than, you know. But then there's, there's this growing dissatisfaction, this feeling that, uh, uh, that, that this is not good enough. And the recognition that there is still suffering there. The recognition that there's still the causes of suffering, and um, if you have students who are on first path, um, there's there's a practice, very pro uh, powerful practice. It's what Vivekananda gave to me, um, and uh, he said, "I want you to watch your mental states." You might recognize that as the third of the for applications of mindfulness, is that I want you to focus entirely on your mental states as they change and shift from moment to moment. And that gave rise to this 
realization that was just, it was, it was so crystal clear that it, it, it took an effort not to speak it out loud in the meditation mm-hmm. hall. It was the recognition that the only truly satisfactory mental states I've ever experienced in my life are the ones that are free from craving. And is there anything like that for, for second that you can point to? Or? Well, it's the one that I already gave you, uh, doing okay. meditation on the mind and watching what arises. So. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. Good question. Um, Kevin Hing. Is Kevin with us? Oh, hi, Kevin. Great. Good, because I wanted to hear that answer, too. Yeah. Hey there. Let me preface it, too. This is, I'm relatively new to the Dharma, and I'm in the process of learning skillfulness. And I don't know if I adequately expressed my question. Really, the gist of my question is I'm trying to learn how to gain confidence in my own exploration of the Dharma, Right. I mean, I really love TMI. It's practice-based, but there's the other aspect. It's learning, reading the Dharma, the, you know, virtue, Sheila, Sheila, all of this. There's so many different disciplines and so many different traditions and so many different views. And what I love about what you do is you unify things and you bring them together, but still as a, as a lonely practitioner in Tampa, Florida, you have to learn how to discern this stuff on your own, you know? And I'm really struggling with what to take what to let go of and have yeah. confidence in myself of, okay, I really resonate with what Chuladasa says about rebirth, but Hanasaro, for example, really is really emphatic about this view. What can I safely take from what he's saying? What can I safely let go if I don't have the comfort of Chuladasa on my shoulder telling me every answer to every question? You just <laughs> that. Do you see what I'm getting? I know. Yeah. And I actually got that when I read the question. Um, Tanisaro and I have had a rather strange ongoing relationship for many years. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, let's just read your question for, for the sake of everyone. Maybe everyone has these questions in front of them. I don't know. but um, You're asking, can I provide further explanation, clarification that would help me to understand, reconcile the apparent contrary views asserted by teachers like Tanisaro Bhikkhu? who strongly asserts that the fear induced by belief in multi-life rebirth uh, uh, is necessary for an effective practice of right view, virtue, etc., and that only when you appreciate the potential for even the most natural or innocuous-seeming attachment to lead to long-term suffering will you be willing to take it seriously and work to abandon it. And only then will you really be following the path. So, <laughs> okay, I'm going to read on. I'll read the whole question here. Uh, I find myself unable to reconcile except belief in multi-life rebirth due to the fledgling insights of anatta that I have already experienced. Good for you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yet Tanisaro's view causes me to doubt whether my well-intentioned practice of renunciation is truly adequate. Okay, so his teaching makes you feel like, well, maybe if I'm not afraid of being 
reborn as a uh, as a frog or uh, or in hell realm or something like that, uh, I won't really practice hard enough to mm -hmm. succeed, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is I think I'm serious enough. I think I'm diligent enough. But then he comes along and like, well, maybe I'm missing something. Yeah. Can, can a dedicated practitioner safely reconcile Tanisaro's orthodox view of rebirth as an example of skillful means? You know, does that sound reasonable to you? Are, are, we, are we all so... Um, lacking in, I don't know what the word is, that we have to be lied to and tricked in order to have sufficient motivation to achieve awakening? Does that make sense? Is that a reasonable? Well, I guess my follow-up too is I, I was further, maybe it was after I posted the question, I found his article on uh, no self. Yes. And in that article, which was fairly lengthy, he does acknowledge it seems that you can, he, he, in that, for no self, he seems to talk about having skillful use of, of anatta, where you start with a very broad sense, and then you eventually work your way, gradually letting go of the sense of self until you can fully achieve the fully abandonment of no self. But I don't know whether he's also saying you could do that with rebirth as well. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he, on no self, he seems to be saying, start with a kindergarten view of, no, of you know, believe in the self enough, you can get into the practice, gradually start letting go of your sense of no self until you, you can let go of it entirely. Right. But you know what I'm saying? So maybe, what's yeah. why I say skillful, is he being, I think I know where you're coming from, but I guess, again, I'm trying to get a sense of what can I safely, you know, I, I don't want to throw away something of some other perspective, some other discipline He's emphatically saying, I want to learn how to extract from that the value, but yeah. still go with what you say, which resonates with me. Yeah. Yes. Well, I've been trying to understand for years what's going on in Tanisaro's mind. He wrote a little book called, I think the title is just Rebirth, something like that. And I believe it's seven chapters long. The first three chapters are... Uh, all excerpts from uh, the suttas that seem to be saying that the Buddha was teaching reincarnation. The next three chapters are all explaining how this is impossible and unreasonable. The final chapter, the seventh chapter, is a rationalization. And when anatta, he insists that anatta means not self, but he I, I, I think, at least in one conversation, I got him to, degree, to agree with the statement that if absolutely everything was not self, there was no self. But uh, I'm not sure, because he immediately went on. Now, a lot of his students are uh, Chinese and in Southern California, and... Um, which is, by the way, how I got to know and be in contact with him. And um, some of them will say, well, I wouldn't go to all this trouble to practice the Dharma if I didn't, if I, if I didn't believe in reincarnation. Uh, they usually say, my childhood was so horrible with my parents driving me all the time and and my older brother was the favorite, and I was always abused, and blah, blah, blah. 
is that I'll do anything to keep from being reborn and go through that again. <laughs> so, um, the, I, I just, I can't buy his rationalization. I read it and think somehow this man knows that this isn't true, but I, I don't understand it. I quite honestly do not understand it. Um, the students that we share have tried many times to arrange for a discussion or a de debate between myself and Tanisaro. He's always refused. So, oh, that is done. It almost sounds like he's admitting that this is just skillful means when he says that. Yeah. Well, I think that's basically his claim is that it's skillful means. But I have a huge problem with this. I have a gigantic problem with this. If you believe in reincarnation, as a matter of fact, one of my theories is that this may apply to him because he, he's, he's super orthodox. He's super orthodox in every way. If this is what the tradition teaches, it has to be true. And this is, well, I'm just going like I hate it when that happens. <laughs> um, you a huge problem with this super orthodox tradition says it has to be true. Yeah, it, 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 getting to the key. Um, yes, okay, yeah. My huge problem with what he teaches is that the more strongly you believe in reincarnation, the harder it is for you to achieve stream entry because you have to give up your belief. You, you have to realize anatta as no self, not as some kind of self that's, you know, out of sight, hard to reach, hard to see, hard to know about. You have to recognize that I am impermanent in the sense that I am a process, that everything is interconnected, that I am just a part of a larger process. You have to recognize that even seeing myself as a process that's part of a larger process is an illusion generated by my mind, because I'm not. It's like looking at a part of the river and saying, that current there is, is separate from the rest of the river. In a sense, it's true, but it's not really true. I mean, our personhood is real, but our selfhood is not. So, it's very difficult for somebody to achieve stream entry if they are absolutely convinced in reincarnation and that there is some single abiding and separate self. It's a huge obstacle. Now, this ray has raised the question in my mind. Has Tanisaro achieved stream entry himself? If not, then he's just teaching the standard doctrine. That's all. He's doing his job. He's upholding the tradition. And he's teaching what's, what's always taught. The other possibility is that he has achieved stream entry. And I've seen this happen in other people, so I can see it happening. He's achieved stream entry, but following stream entry, he's faced with the paradox of the Buddha says, according to his tradition, that reincarnation is, is real and is a problem. 
And he still experiences that inherent sense of being a separate self that doesn't go away until you become an arhat. So he has to rationalize that. Now, people rationalize that in a lot of ways. Uh, the most common way is they seize on consciousness because consciousness is sort of, sort of amorphous and uh, ephemeral and everything else. It is pretty easy to mold it into, ah, consciousness. Consciousness is that true self. That, I mean, after all, if you say, what am I? Well, all I am is a string of moments of consciousness. So it's an easy story to buy in. But if you are familiar with the sutta where Sati, the fisherman's son, started teaching people that it was consciousness that was reborn, well, the Buddha just chewed him to pieces on that. <laughs> and the Buddha, and even in the Anattalankana Sutra, uh, the Sutra on, on Anatta, uh, on no self, uh, even there, he specifically says there is no self. Consciousness consists of uh, moments in which uh, consciousness arises together with this object, and there is no self in that. The other path that people take is they say, okay, the Buddha made it clear that it's not consciousness, but mind. Now, mind is something else, okay? And so, like the Tibetans invented the mind stream, you know, ah, it's the mind stream. That's what goes on, you know? So... I've seen before people come into a place where because of their prior beliefs and commitment to those beliefs, and because they still have this sense of being separate, that they strive very hard to find some way to recon reconcile these. And uh, one other theory that I have, which I could talk to you about if you didn't let me, is that Tanasaro is, is truly a stream entrant, but uh, feels like he can't betray his tradition by, uh, by uh, denouncing the incarnation. Now, as far as I'm concerned, what the Buddha meant by rebirth is rebirth of the self as a mental fabrication. Yeah, the self as a mental fabrication is constantly being reborn. And in each new child that's born, they go through a change, and when is it, by the time they're about two years old, that they have a well-developed construct of self. That self has been reborn in this new child. This is the rebirth that the Buddha is talking about. And this is the birth that ends. This is the birth that ends. It's, so, anyway, that's, that's my thoughts on those things. And uh... Thank you. As usual, I've been going on and got lots of wonderful questions and not much time. But is, uh, is Philip here? Philip Yavanovsky. Seems not. Toby. Toby here? 
seems not. Uh, Michael Walsh. Okay, he's here. Hey. <clears throat> what role does the Dharma awakening play in treating psychiatric conditions that are commonly believed to be more biological in nature, like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia? Can awakening cure such dis disorders? How would such an individual progress through the 10 stages and the paths of awakening? What precautions should an individual take? The traditional texts do not seem to mention things that could match up to bipolar or schizophrenia or patterns of behavior that correlate with our modern understanding of mental illness. You're absolutely right about that last statement. They don't, they don't seem to address that at all. They seem to ignore it entirely. Maybe everyone was more mentally healthy in those days. I don't know. I kind of doubt it, though. Uh, in my own experience, though, um, um, I had one student with uh, schizophrenia, and uh, she attended uh, quite a few retreats with me, and she would often call me up and we'd talk on the phone. And through meditation, she was able to reach a place where she heard the voices, she heard what they're saying, but she no longer believed that they were anything but uh, a, a disordered part of her mind, and she didn't believe what they were saying. They, these voices would tell her that she was bad, that she deserved to die. Uh, these voices would tell her that they were gonna kill her, or that she should kill herself, and things like that. And she got to a place, and. She told me her psychiatrist was really uh, very, very happy with what, when she got to a place where she could just accept those voices for what they were, an aspect of her illness. I also had a number of people with bipolar disorder as students, uh, still do. And the biggest problem with, with them is that uh, they always want to cut back on their medications or quit their medications uh, because it interferes with their meditation. But uh, I, I won't continue to be in the role of teacher for them or let them attend a retreat unless they absolutely promise not to modify their medications. Um, what I find is it does help them deal with uh, it somewhat. Now, I come from a family where everybody was bipolar, and I was myself. Um, that disappeared um, quite a long time ago. Um, I mean, it would be really tempting to say that, uh, you know, I was, I was quite mildly bipolar. Uh, my, my sister and my mother much more severely so. But uh, I was mildly bipolar, but it disappeared. And it would be really tempting to say, oh, it was because of my meditation practice that it disappeared. But it is a fact that bipolar disorder diminishes and often disappears uh, around middle age or, or shortly after uh, in many people. Not always, but often. And so I won't make that claim. The most I will say is that meditation does help people uh, with these kinds of uh, uh, biological uh, uh, psychiatric problems. It, it, it can definitely help them. 
certainly not a cure for such disorders uh, by any means. And there are certain, certain dangers. Um, well, I, I was married once before uh, to a woman and she was, uh, she had a schizophrenic breakdown and uh, she read messages in street signs and license plates and she asked uh, our four-year-old son, made him responsible for making all important life decisions and things like that. And uh, she became severely schizophrenic as a result of doing uh, Tibetan tantric practices. And, uh, you know, there are some practices that would be extremely dangerous for somebody who has uh, schizophrenia. Now, the thing is that you often don't know that somebody is, uh, is a schizophrenic waiting for something to trigger uh, their, their initial psychotic episode, which will then set them on the path. And this is certainly not obvious with Sharon, but uh, it was doing the tantric practices uh, and if you're familiar at all with tantric practices, you can probably understand why. It led her to a total schizophrenic breakdown from which she never recovered uh, to this day. So, um, and a more general thing that I would say is everybody has neurosis. Everybody has some degree of mental disorder. As a matter of fact, seeing the world the way that our conventional reality sees the world is itself a mental disorder. And uh, insight and awakening are the cure for that particular mental disorder. But every, everyone has all kinds of, of uh, neurosis. They have had emotional and psychological trauma, etc. In the method that I teach, I, I make dealing with that an important part of it. Uh, most methods and most teachers will encourage people to overlook or bury or avoid or whatever uh, these things when they come up. And instead, uh, the method that I describe in TMI, I call it purification, and it has to happen. Interesting thing is, if any of you are familiar with Ken Wilbur, is his recent thing is to say that awakening is not enough. In addition to waking up, there needs to be cleaning up, which is cleaning up all of your neurosis. And then there is growing up. And what he means by growing up is basically moving from uh, a place of being egocentric, developing compassion for, uh, uh, and a broader and broader circle, you know, uh, compassion for family, compassion for uh, uh, love and compassion for your ethnic group, ultimately love and compassion for your species, or for all species, for the planet Earth, for everything. And I think Ken Wilber is right. Waking up is only one-third of what we need to do. We need to clean up and we need to grow up. <coughs> TMI makes a stab at bringing, bringing the cleaning up part into the picture. So that's about as much as I can say about um, mental illness at this point. There are people who, when they get to the stage of purifications, will come across things that they cannot deal on their, with on their own. 
and it's very appropriate for them to seek out therapy to help them. Um, one of the, you know, the so-called dark night, the, this phenomenon of people whose lives become totally disrupted, and the dark night is pathological. It's not the same thing as the dukkhanana, uh, or the knowledge of the suffering. This is a result of people reaching insight without having dealt with any of their neurosis. All of that neurosis, well, not all of it, a lot of that neurosis comes to the surface, and then they have to deal with it, and then they enter into a, a dark night kind of experience. Um, and I'll go beyond that and say that even at the high, higher paths and the highest levels of awakening, these can be achieved without having completely completed the process of cleaning up. There are certain kinds of things which can be hidden, which the Dharma itself provides a perfect hiding place for certain kinds of neuroses. And uh, these are blind spots that people can have. Uh, I've experienced that myself. Uh, I look at a lot of uh, revered teachers who have done things that you can only describe as outrageous and uh, think that, that the same thing is true of them, that, that um, in spite of the degree of awakening they have, there are parts of their psyche that are, are severely disordered that are hiding out under some aspect of, uh, of the Dharma and are guiding their behaviors in ways that are unhealthy and unwholesome. So. What are the blind spots that the Dharma hides? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? What are those blind spots that you said that the Dharma hides? <laughs> okay, yeah, I can tell you one of them. Um, uh, what I discovered uh, about myself, I, I, I listened to, uh, I think it was a TED talk, uh, by Gabor Mate, uh, it was called uh, When the Body Says No. And as a part of that TED Talk, he read a collection of obituaries that he had uh, clipped out of the Toronto Globe and Mail. And every one of them described me. They were all people who had died of cancer, and they described me perfectly. And uh, this, this uh, caught my attention in a very strong way. And so I decided to uh, work with a therapist on this. And what we came in touch with was an aspect of my personality. I had an extremely difficult child. An aspect of my personality that uh, had been manifesting as the belief that my well-being was not as important as other people's needs. And, um, you know, my, one of my favorite philosophers, Willie Nelson, in his birthday album from last year, uh, God's Problem Child, there's a song, I Woke Up Still Not Dead Again Today. And uh, one of the lines in there is, uh, is uh, they say my pace would kill a natural, uh, would kill a normal man. 
but then I've never been accused of being normal anyway. <laughs> and, and that describes me. I, I work, I've given classes from hospital beds. Um, I've come out of major uh, uh, abdominal surgery uh, on, uh, performed on Tuesday, went home on Thursday, and was at work Friday morning. Uh, I have been this way for many, many years. And I teach people that, that true compassion doesn't mean throwing yourself under the bus for somebody else's sake. I teach people that the proper attitude of a bodhisattva is they see themselves in the same way that they see everyone else. That it's like a mother sees all of their children as equal and would not do something harmful to one child for the sake of another. But here I was, here I have been for years, uh, pushing myself, always pushing myself, doing more, somebody has a need, will you do this, can you help me? And, uh, and the Dharma is a perfect cover for that. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm, ju I'm, just, I'm just living the Dharma, right? Perfect cover for that. Well, it turns out that that part of me from my childhood was, is, is trying to kill me <laughs> because of, of, of me doing that. And that's probably, well, possibly the reason that I have cancer, the reason that I had uh, uh, neurological Lyme disease before that. Uh, and prior to that, I had a diagnosis of ALS. And I wouldn't put it past the possibility that the ALS diagnosis was uh, actually was accurate until something inside me changed it into something treatable. <laughs> so now my challenge is to, is to survive cancer. But yeah, this is how something can hide uh, under the Dharma. Now, this is, this is a, I mean, people speak in admiration of uh, me doing the things I'm doing. And that reinforces and makes it easier for me to keep harming myself by trying to do too much, right? Um, you'd have to come up with a different explanation for what uh, Sasaki Roshi did. But, uh, you know, uh, and <laughs> but I could see that being due to the same thing, to some some part of himself that, uh, you know, I mean, I've never been able to decide. Was Sasaki Roshi just, you know, uh, really good at talking the talk but didn't, hadn't really realized any degree of compassion? Or, uh, or did he really have such a big blind spot? Did he really believe it when he said the only reason I touched those female students was to help them break down their inner barriers and, and open up, you know? I can't decide. I don't know. And why should I? What do I have to decide about Sasaki Roshi? But, but I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of what we see with teachers is, the, is major blind spots that, um, that certain aspects of the Dharma can hide, can, can disguise. You know? Okay, thank you. Thank you as well. Thank you. You're welcome. And I think that's enough for today.
<laughs> we might do another catch up for something with the other questions. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, I enjoyed it. I hope you found it useful. Uh, you'll notice I'm, I'm being a little more outspoken about things that I would uh, in the past have been a little, uh, I would have soft pedaled more, but hey, you know, um, at my age, you, you get to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so my apologies to Tanisaro. Didn't mean to insult you, but. <laughs> <laughs> Just speaking from the heart. Anyway, thank you all. Really appreciate you. Appreciate your support. Look forward to the next time we talk. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Take care. You too. Bye. 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 Thank you.